I'm Dave Laird. I'm Matt Booker. And welcome to the very first live episode of The Great Concavity, coming to you from Illinois State University, DFW 14. 17. improvising our <laughs> live version of our theme song by Parquet Courts. Instant Disassembly. Um, I just want to thank everyone for coming here first right off the bat. This is our first, uh, as Dave said, first live episode we've ever done. This, I think overall this is about our 30th episode. 29, episode 29. 29. If you count um, the two-parter we did last year. <laughs> so yes, uh, technically 30th. But uh, it, it's a huge deal because this is actually the first time that Dave and I have ever recorded one of these in the same room. Yep. So, uh, and it's also the first time that Dave and I have seen each other in two years. Since we met two years ago so, at this conference, yeah. Uh, we in have, the airport. We have <laughs> communicated almost exclusively via Skype and uh, Google Hangouts and video conferencing and with the guests all around the world. So in the UK, in Australia, and it's been um, yep. a fun year and a half. and. I, we also, I just say, we want to start out also by thanking Ryan Edel. Where's Ryan? Ryan, back there. Ryan at the back. For, um, for planning the conference and, and really his support in uh, allowing us to have this time during the conference to uh, have our little fun session. <laughs> so, where we're not really, it's not going to be like academic talk just warning y'all like just shooting just shooting, shooting the breeze, breeze. Uh, and so we do have some giveaways Dave you want to talk about we got stuff? prizes you guys lots of books um, what we're going to do is so to give you like a table of contents for the next one hour we have one hour it's probably going to be the shortest episode <laughs> maybe ever we've never done uh, a one or at hour least show. since like episode one yeah. or two <laughs> so uh, we have two guests that are going to be joining us up here at the front today we've got Charlie Harris who many of you know from the Wallace community and James Plath who is the head of the John Updike Society, so we're going to be hearing from him. And uh, in between, intermittently, we're going to be doing some giveaways. So we're going to start right now with prize giveaway number one. It's audience participatory, so get ready to, to raise your hands if something applies to you. All right. Who thinks they came the furthest to get to this conference in terms of, like, global travel? Who thinks that they might be in contention? All right, where are you from? Scotland, nice. Melbourne, Australia. Australia. <laughs> Welcome. Grace. I think Adelaide is farther. Adelaide is farther, farther than <laughs> Melbourne. Can anyone beat Adelaide, Adelaide, Australia? Grace Chipperfield. Grace Chipperfield. Come, Come on down. down. <laughs> uh, just keep an eye on time. Too. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so we have uh, an array of books over from Matt's left all the way to this little tiny thing from the Pale King. Too. We have a. You get first choice. Take a book. Because you came the furthest. It's a book and and a book. It's both <laughs> and. Yes. All right. Um, as as Grace is choosing, the next question. You're welcome. Thank you for coming all of this way. Uh, who thinks that they spent the most time in a car to get here to this conference? Who thinks they might have it? 
You want to drive for like 10 Any, anyone hours? Anyone drive over eight hours? 15 hours, 20 hours. <laughs> How far did you drive to get here, Becky? Well, that's going to be tough to beat. 15, can anyone beat 15 from Portland, Oregon? All right, Becky, come on down. Becky, come on down. <laughs> All right, who thinks they have the worst accommodations? Who has a, who has a, who has a story of... <laughs> yeah, you live here. That doesn't count. <laughs> oh, because of the car? Shut yeah, up. cool. <laughs> who's, got a, who's got like a really like abysmal living who's situation right now? Who thinks, who's got a gross... Anyone staying at the... Sh <laughs> Michael, Michael, give us your sob story. <laughs> well, I'm staying in a lovely house with some great people, but then when I went to bed last night, there was nowhere for me to sleep because everyone slept in all of the good places. So I had to pull together this couch, but the middle section was on wheels, so in the middle of the night, <laughs> and it slid away from the rest of the couch. And I was like, it's like St Stice's bed, uh, just mysteriously yeah, moved. Is that Stice? Yeah. yeah. All right, come get a book. That's tough to do. Come on. <laughs> You made us feel bad. All right, cool. Uh, let's do one more. Who thinks that they've read Infinite Jest cover to cover the most times? Has anyone read it uh, three times or more? At least three times. Carly. Okay, four, four times. times or more? Carly. Uh, this okay, guy. and okay, five times or more? This guy. All right, come What's on down. Name? Is it Rob? Rob? Rob Mayo, I think. Five times. Or is it six or higher? Was it five? five. Five's five. the number. Sweet. That's very tight. You win something. <laughs> you win something. All right. Come on in. Come on in. Come on. Pick out a pick book. a book. Get a sticker. Get a sticker. Take one of these Take like these, uh, trading car author trading card packs. Yep. It is. All right, uh, so that's uh, take that's, a book. No, take that's a book. giveaway uh, part one. There will be more intermittently coming. So. So we're gonna move along and uh, bring, bring up our first guest. Bring up our first guest, uh, Charlie. Come on, come on up. It's here for Charlie Harris. Everybody, welcome him to the show. I think that everyone at the conference knows um, Charlie Harris, but if not, uh, I'm gonna give an introduction for the people who are going to be listening to this on a recorded podcast, and so I'm gonna give you a proper introduction for those people who might not know who you are. <laughs> Charles B. Harris is the Emeritus Professor of English at Illinois State University, where he chaired the English department for 15 years. He's a founding director of the Unit for Contemporary Literature, a national center for the literary arts, which served as an umbrella organization for several literary presses and journals, including Dalkey Archive Press, FC2, American Book Review, Review of Contemporary Fiction, Context, and others. His books include Contemporary American Novelists of the Absurd, Passionate Virtuosity, The Fiction of John Barth, The Holodeck in the Garden, Science and Technology in Contemporary American Fiction, and John Barth, A Body of Words. His articles on American fiction and the profession of English studies have appeared in numerous scholarly journals and essay collections, and he's publisher emeritus of American Book Review. And he also serves on the advisory board of Bloomsbury's new series, David Foster Wallace Studies. Everyone, again, welcome Charlie Harris. That's a, that's a pretty good resume, Charlie. Ah, well done. Well, you've worked hard over the years. I mostly told the truth. <laughs> awesome. So, Charlie, this is my third year at this conference, and every year that I've been here, you have been uh, so welcoming and just such a vibrant part of this community. So, thank you for everything you've done for the community and at this conference. And you've also done talks in the previous years about 
your relationship with Dave Wallace and how you've known him uh, in an academic context over the years when he was here at ISU, uh, how you had a friendship with him, and, and just really cool personal stuff that you don't always get at an academic conference. Um, so I've always really loved your talks and appreciated those. So, well, thank uh, you. Yeah. So <laughs> maybe give us a little bit of, of background for people who maybe haven't seen any of your talks before. Um, tell us about how did you meet Dave? What was, uh, how did he get come on board here at ISU? Give us a bit of the, the history. Well, I first met David. At, people who've known him the longest call him Dave, but for some reason Sorry. we at ISU always <laughs> called him David. Uh, <laughs> I first met him in a hotel room in New York City in <clears throat> December 1992 when we uh, interviewed him for a creative writing job here at Illinois State University. And uh, he wasn't a shoe-in by, uh, by any means. This was pre-Infinite Jest, David Foster Wallace. He was two books into his career. Uh, there was a pretty stiff competition. Uh, uh, other people applied for the job whose names you would, uh, you would recognize. Can you say uh, them? No. Uh, uh, they know who they are, and some of you do, but uh, no. I mean, they've gone on to have great careers themselves, so it, it didn't hurt them. Uh, we knew about David, though, because uh, the year before, uh, well, that very year, 1992, we brought Dalkey Archive Press to campus, uh, John O'Brien's uh, press, uh, and he brought the Review of Contemporary Fiction with him. Steve Moore uh, was part of that at the time. And, of course, David had published twice already in uh, the Review of Contemporary Fiction. And while that famous issue uh, in which uh, he and, uh, and Volman and, and Susan Deitch are covered that has the McCaffrey interview and uh, Eunibus Purim and excerpts from uh, uh, Infinite Jest, that had not yet been published. But it was here. It, was, it, was, it came out in the summer of 93. So we were aware of who he was and knew his potential. And um, to make a long story short, he did very well in the interview there. Uh, he did that as unorthodoxly as he did everything else. Uh, but he, uh, he impressed us and charmed us, and, and then he came to campus uh, for, uh, for an interview. Same thing happened. Um, did he bring it, the NASA cup? I don't remember him bringing it to the interview, but he used it in the classroom. And uh, in our house, he spent a lot of time in our home. He quickly became a, a close family friend. He kept a, a tin can uh, in, in one of our restrooms. And it slowly but surely made a stain, a round stain, on the wood floor of, of that restroom. Several years ago, we uh, renovated the floors. And I thought, you know, maybe we should leave that there. Aww. And I said, nah, that, that's too sentimental. That's, that's something David would have hated. And so we didn't. And then I mentioned it to my wife, Victoria, who is also my colleague and a very close friend of, uh, of David's. I mentioned it to her after we had already sanded the floors. And she said, I thought the same thing. So I, I, we could have taken everybody there to see the, uh, the stain. <laughs> the spittoon. <laughs> so, so David joined our faculty and uh, quickly became a valued colleague and a, uh, a good family friend. And um, of course, Infinite Jest was published. He got a MacArthur Genius Grant. Uh, everything happened. Uh, he spent about 10 years here. Uh, he was here from uh, 2003, uh, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, from 1993 to 2002. And it was his most productive period. 
Uh, he finished Infinite Jest here. I hope some of you have had a chance to drive by his, uh, the house that he lived in uh, on the uh, south side of Bloomington where he finished Infinite Jest and either finished or started pretty much everything else that he wrote the rest of his life, in, including uh, A Pale King. So it was a, it was a good 10 years that he spent here, and uh, we miss him every day. Is that enough? Yeah, <laughs> I was going to ask when when you were interviewing him, had you read uh, his take on Lost in the Fun House? I mean, you're a Bart scholar yourself, and were you aware of Westward, or did you read it afterwards? And that, and like, did you uh, talk to him about that? I, I had not read Westward. Oh, okay. uh, I later, of course, did. Uh, but he made sure that we talked about Bart in the interviews. In fact, when he was here. <laughs> Uh, we were sitting at a, uh, a Chinese restaurant after after his day of interviews, and uh, he went out of his way to tell me that John Barth was dead. <laughs> now, he, he have, I, I don't think he would have done that unless he thought he, he that I would not react too negatively. But that that was David, uh, and he meant dead, of course, uh, as a literary influence. Uh, some of you, of you may know, I don't believe that, that for a minute. I think that uh, <laughs> Barth was a very important influence on, on David's work. Uh, but no, uh, but, uh, but very quickly I did. Of course, the McCaffrey interview, he goes after postmodernism and Barth yeah. as well. Yeah. So he made no, uh, no secret about it and did not try to conceal. In fact, on the contrary. Uh, he, he tried to let all of us know, including me, what he what he thought about, or what he pretended to think about uh, Barth and the, and the first generation postmodernists. But what what was your take on that, though? Did you consider him to be like the next thing? Like, if if you're going to take down these postmodernists, or you know, what is post postmodernism? Were you formulating what that would look like, or were you? No, I had to wait to see what it looked like. But I I, I think that's exactly what he did, and. Uh, uh, I, I think what what David did, uh, particularly with Infinite Jest and thereafter, was was take postmodernism as he found it, and he didn't repudiate it. Uh, he didn't reject it. He took it to another stage. He took it to another developmental stage, in my opinion. Uh, the first generation postmodernist, that's just a vast generalization and oversimplification, you understand that, but I, I think basically what they were doing was, 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 was dealing with what they considered to be the truth, that, that human reality is largely uh, a, a construct. We live in a worded world. Uh, we're in language. That's what they did through form and theme. Uh, David took that as a given and said, okay, given the fact that we live in a worded world, how do we live in it? What, what values do, do we espouse? Uh, and that's, that's where I think he took, he took postmodernism. He's not the only one who did that. I think you could, you could argue that Richard Fowler is, is doing much the, the same thing and, and others as well. So I see a kind of a continuity there. And, and in attacking the first-generation postmodernists like Barth and Pynchon, I think he was clearing a space for himself, uh, but uh, he didn't sink back into the welcoming, comfortable arms of realism like like other writers of his generation uh, did. Uh, his work, one of the most amazing things about David's work, it seems to me, is that it is difficult, and yet it's loved by people other than professional readers. <laughs> Some of you are here. Yeah. High school students love it. I don't right. understand that. I mean, I love it. <laughs> And it's not true of other difficult writers that I know. And it's not true of the, of the more accessible contemporary writers, 
whom you would expect, you know, the uh, non-professional readers uh, to love. So it's, it's amazing how he straddles mm -hmm. uh, what yeah. used to be a divide. And you see it at this conference. I mean, uh, this is the most eclectic mm -hmm. group I, uh, year after year after year, not mm -hmm. just this year. What do you think it is about his writing specifically that, that does that? Oh, that, boy. That gets people <laughs> yeah. that aren't academic, that are, you know, I, I, what's special? What's well, in, in ways that I'm not sure they could articulate, and I certainly <laughs> don't want to speak for them. I, yeah, I yeah. think they sense, you know, David, uh, uh, someone gave a, a paper earlier today about uh, Amy Hungerford uh, claiming that uh, David's uh, uh, work was sort of a, a, a rape or a, uh, um, um, a sexual conquest. But he talked about it as, as love. Hmm. Uh, he, there's always a space for his reader. I mean, he leaves a whole year out of infinite jest <laughs> for the reader to come in. And I think they sense that. Also, you know, people who have the same kinds of problems that, that David yeah. knew so well, d depression and the like, he's able to address that mm -hmm. in ways that, that high school kids who have not studied literature at advanced levels are able to respond to. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so that's part of the answer, I think. I think it's the, the, the fact that he insists that, uh, that, that the reader engage a consciousness, not his or her own. I think that's his ethic and his aesthetic. Mm -hmm. And at some level, maybe unarticulatable level, uh, people of all ages, you know, the various educational backgrounds, since that, mm -hmm. uh, and it, 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 so that's 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 part of it. But I when, think when you're talking about he he sees it as love, I mean, and you said, oh, he said that. Other colleagues of his that I've heard speak about this said it was kind of like faux pas to talk to him about his own work, and that he would make kind of a rude <laughs> gesture and like not want to talk about it. What what was that like? Like, were you collegial enough with him where you could be like, hey, David, I read your newest story and. You know, want to discuss it? No, or, it was yeah. hard to get David to yeah. talk about his work. Yeah. Uh, he would occasionally give us uh, passages from his work or entire chapter. I mean, we have early chapters of, of Infinite Jest. Uh, we have the David Lynch essay. Fire mm. Miller, he had given mm. them to, to, to Victoria and to Kimberly. He and, and our daughter Kimberly were, were very close for, for a while. Mm -hmm. But I had very few discussions with David mm. about his work. He was pretty close closed mouth about it. One of the few people who read Infinite Jest before it came out here was Stephen Moore. Mm -hmm. um, so he was, uh, he didn't like to talk about himself. Right. Uh, he didn't like to, um, uh, he, he wanted to be, he, he would say, call me Dave. Mm -hmm. And we didn't, we called that's him Dave. That's why I'm doing it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, right, yeah, that's what you're doing now. He, uh, he wanted to be a normal guy. And of course, with that kind of talent and that kind of IQ and that kind of unorthodoxy, mm. he was he was not normal. But that's that's what he as aspired to. So there was David, the person that some of us were uh, fortunate enough to know, and then there was David who existed in his books mm -hmm. that more people know, and including us. And then there's David the myth, uh, which disturbs me sometimes because I don't see any relationship between some of that myth in either the work or, or, the, or the actual uh, 
a David. Like the St. Dave kind of ideas? The St. Dave yeah. kinds of ideas, the ideas that David was some kind of a sexual predator. He, mm. he was not. I mean, mm. he was, if anything, shy. I mean, he, he dated a, a, a lot of women. He dated his graduate students because they were the cohort of women his age that he met. But he never exploited I- anyone. And I'm in touch, Victoria and I are in touch with a lot of those, those women to this day. And they speak as highly of, of, of David as, as anyone else. So that's out there somehow that, uh, that, that he, he, he exploited, that he was a sexual harasser, that he was, uh, he, he was not. Yeah. Our daughter lived with him for a while. That's in, in Daniel Max's biography, so I'm not giving anything away. And, and you might enjoy <laughs> this story. Uh, Kimberly told us that David wanted to talk to us. And so that night, we were sitting around the kitchen table, uh, David and Kimberly and, and Victoria, and, and, uh, and, and I was there, of course. And David was very nervous, and he was twitching, and it was clear he wanted to say something we didn't know what. And finally, our daughter said, David wants to ask you for my thumb. <laughs> David asked our permission for Kimberly to live with him. <laughs> There's a kind of almost a kind of an honor about that, a kind of courtliness about that. And we said, of course, we don't care. I mean, uh, so so that was a David. He did not have a reputation when he was here of being a sexual predator. We had a very strong feminist contingent in the department. Victoria was was among those groups. They would not have put up with it. So when I hear that, and it's out there, uh, and some. Critics have even read that back into his 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 his, his aesthetic, his books. Mm. That, that's the myth. That's yeah. what I'm talking about. So yeah. there's David yeah. the person. There's so that's David the, the right writer. End of the spectrum, and then there's like yeah, the and saint, then there's yeah. the, the the myth, the Saint yeah. Dave, yeah. and the, the not so Saint Dave. And there's also the teacher. Can you talk a little bit about him as a teacher and what you know? I'm sure as you were the chair of the department, you observe him in the classroom. No, we didn't do that. For we brought him in. Uh, we couldn't bring him in uh, for tenure because uh, our rules were not permitted. But we did bring him in at an advanced rate, uh, rank. We brought him in as an associate professor. Right. And uh, but when it was here, did you observe him? Teaching? No, no. We, as I say, we, that was not part of the departmental practice. We okay. did. We not didn't go into. But I'm I'm, I'm aware of of, uh, of of what the student response to him was. Mm-hmm. David took t- teaching very seriously. I don't know anything he didn't take very seriously. He was a very serious <laughs> person. He was a very funny person. But he took it very seriously. And he was very demanding. Um, he, um, um, he was a hard grader. Uh, he, if, he, he, if you weren't there, uh, he would check you as, as absent. Um, he loved literature, and he tried to pass that love on to his, uh, to his students. And the students who could work with him loved him. Some of the students did not. David could have taught nothing but creative writing, but he wanted not only to teach literary courses, he volunteered to teach lower division courses. He volunteered to teach grammar and rhetoric courses. Um, I'm not sure he was too happy once he got into them, but, uh, uh, but, but you know, his mother uh, was, a, uh, was a community college teacher and, and wrote a rhetoric textbook. And so it was something that he considered to be uh, very, uh, very important. Mm-hmm. So he was a dedicated, serious, demanding uh, uh, teacher. Well, that's how really he made his livelihood and considered himself a teacher, I think, because you couldn't exist as a writer without that, like, for, for him. Um, when you brought him in with, 
Uh, can you talk a little bit about his relationship with the, the publishing unit that was here? With he, I know that he worked on some other um, like translation issues of Review of Contemporary Fiction. Yeah, we assigned him to Dalkey Archive Press. Uh, we were trying to figure out a way to reduce his course load. Uh, ISU is a strange sort of hybrid. We have some departments with PhDs. Most do not have PhDs. Mm. And so it's hard to get the kind of teaching load that uh, research institutions automatically have. The English department had a doctoral program. So in order to give him a reduced load, we gave him an alternative assignment, and that was the Dalkey Archive Press. And one of the things he did do was edit a special issue of Review of Contemporary Fiction, that Quo Vadis issue, which, which some of you may, may know. But he also volunteered to read the, tra one of the things Dalkey does is publishes translations. And David volunteered to read those those manuscripts, those uh, those those translations. Uh, so that was his his relationship. Of course, he I, I don't know if you know what the Unit for Contemporary Literature was, but it was this umbrella organization that contained Dalkey Archive Press and, and FC2, uh, American Book Review, uh, Review of Contemporary Fiction. We were also a service organization for the field. We had conferences. Um, and it, uh, it, 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 it sort of brought together uh, 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 publishing and writing and the teaching of contemporary uh, literature. It was sort of a center for independent literary publishing. Uh, and that allowed us to bring a community here that David felt comfortable with. He used to jokingly say he was the most conservative writer on the faculty. <laughs> I think he may have believed that, <laughs> but no, none of the rest of us did. So we worked with people like Kurt White. And he and John O'Brien were, 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 were close friends. Cool. So fourth year of the conference here. Yes. There's now a society for Wallace. Yes. Where do you see all this stuff going? Where do you want to see it go? Well, I'd like to see it continue. Um, <laughs> Illinois is broke. The state of Illinois is broke. It has the lowest credit rating of any state in the union. Uh, its uh, bond rating just dropped to one notch above bond level. We haven't had a budget in three years. So how in the world, Ryan and, and the group that's putting this together, uh, and, and Jane um, b before Ryan, were able to do this on, on literally on a, on a, on a shoestring mm -hmm. uh, is, is amazing to me. And uh, you, know, you, you guys came from all over the world here, and, and, and you make it happen. Uh, but I don't think we're likely to have a budget. Uh, before the next uh, election in 2018. Uh, if, if Ryan's going to be here next year. He's committed to having it here again next year. I'd love to leave it here, uh, uh, keep it here, because this is where David is. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, you, you're meeting in classrooms David taught in. Mm -hmm. uh, you can walk down and look at his office. You can drive out and look at the house where Infinite Jest was, was, was completed. You could eat in the restaurants that he liked. There's something nice about that. Yeah, that's cool. But uh, it, it, if... if if it's necessary to keep the conference alive, to find other locations and maybe come back here ever so, mm. ever so, mm. ever so often, uh, that would be acceptable to me, R regrettable. Mm -hmm. uh, but I hope we can keep it alive mm -hmm. um, uh, under the circumstances that, that, uh, that we're facing. Yeah. Thanks for joining us today. Oh, Charlie. my pleasure. We really appreciate it. Um, we are going to um, do a couple more giveaways here and, uh, I think everyone in the conference, we do owe you a debt for helping to get, um, you know, the support behind this conference. And uh, it's like Dave said, it's just really great having you here to to be part of it. So mm -hmm. we're we're really lucky that you 
support it so thoroughly. Well, thank you, and, and thank you guys for your support. And I think this society is is going to really, really make a difference. So thank Thanks you. A lot. And I, I wish I brought my accordion. I didn't know you were going to play it. And uh, a special thanks to you, Charlie, as well, uh, because I, so I've been practicing instant disassembly for a while, because I have a ukulele at home, and I put it in my luggage, packing for this trip, put it in first thing, like really long, it's like, I don't know, started putting the things in, and by, I was like, I can't fit shoes, I can't fit, like, <laughs> so, okay, so I'm just gonna, just, we'll just play it on the, on the iTunes, and then, but then I messaged Charlie on Facebook, I was like, kind of a long shot, do you have a ukulele? <laughs> like, know somebody who has one? And the one he got is like way better than the one I have, so it's like, <laughs> thanks for very, that too. very awesome. Thanks again, Charlie. All right, we're gonna move into prize giveaway uh, round number two. So, let's see, hmm. We talked about Infinite Jest, okay. Who has, who thinks they have the worst travel story getting to the conference this year? Who's got something bad in like in in like one Jake. sentence or less? All right, Matt, and then Jay. It might be me. <laughs> one sentence or less, real quick. Amtrak, twelve-hour journey turned into twenty-hour journey. Missed the connection from Champaign to Bloomington, and was assisted by the the kindness of strangers by a very nice person on the same train who was driving from Champaign to Bloomington. Okay, right. because like your train got in like an accident is the right, yeah, so that's pretty, that's pretty bad. Okay, so that's pretty good. Uh, Jay, one sentence or less, what was, what's your bad travel story getting here? <laughs> All right, that's pretty good. Were, were you guys on the same train together? Is that what I... No, no, I was on the Okay. Okay, did your train get in an accident though? Okay. Okay. Can anyone talk? I think Matt's winning. Can anyone top Matt's? Matt was in like a like a like a wreck to get here. So, a, tra a literal train. Literal train wreck. Yeah. <laughs> you're safe. You're fine. Yeah. Other other people are not. All right, Matt. Come on up here, man. It's here for Matt Luter. Has anyone been to all four conferences? I like that one. Has anyone been to all four conferences here at ISU? Hand up. Okay. Presented that's, a paper at all that's four? That's good. Has anyone presented a paper at all four? Okay, now. Wait, wait, he's got his hand up. Oh. What's your name? Yeah. What's your name? Oh, Daniel. Daniel, Daniel you've, you've been here four times and presented every time. Rob Short, sure. you as well. Is that a hand? Uh, also, Danielle. 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 Okay. Uh, have you guys been to any other Wallace conferences in addition to these ones? How many? So you're just straight up ISU guy. Yeah. Danielle, where else? Were you at Paris? ALA. At ALA. Does that win? At our panel. I think Daniel wins. All right, Danielle. Good Daniel job coming up here. Okay. Um, who here thinks that they went the most sack pop yesterday at Escaton? <laughs> <laughs> I have someone in mind. John, John, you're a good candidate. Tell us about your, your Escaton story. Well, uh, being the leader of one of the. Was it Sovor? Sovor, was that your, your pact? Uh, sure. Soviet, sure. yeah. Um, no, I was the leader of Russia. Yeah. I sort of made myself leader. Um, <laughs> 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 Where's Peter? He was my, he was my strong arm. Uh, 
Yeah, is she here? Is she in the room right now? Who is your nemesis? I don't, I don't know her name. <laughs> She's not here. Ah, this question was like totally for her because she went, she went ballistic. It was great. <laughs> All right, John, come get All right, the book. John, John, you win. All right, Sackpot Master strikes against civilian populations. Okay, we got one more uh, prize giveaway for this round, and then we'll have another round later. Uh, has anyone in this room? actually read Fate, Time, and Language from cover to cover. <laughs> Get a sticker. There's three of us? Is that it? Three. Oh my gosh. Okay. Hmm. How do can we anyone, do a tiebreaker? Can anyone tell us the summary of, of his thesis? <laughs> summary of his thesis? <laughs> You've read everything. Have you read everything more? Okay, I have two. Um, still a tie. What's, uh, okay, Ulysses? Have you, either of you read Ulysses? Jake, all right. I think that, will that do it? Is that a right, tiebreaker? That it. It's not... <laughs> oh, All right, Jake, come on up here, Jake. Come get a book. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right, we're going to move on to our guest number two. We have James Plath. You want to do the intro? Should we Jim, bring Jim up, up first? Jim, then we'll do that. Let's hear it for Jim. Take a book. Welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. <laughs> I have to take this. <clears throat> yeah, that's a good I one. I don't have it. All right. All right. Cool. Thanks, Jake. Thanks, Jake. All right. Our next guest, Jim Plath, is the president of the John Updike Society, and he's also the R. Forrest Colwell Chair of English here at Illinois Wesleyan University in Bloomington. He's been involved in Updike criticism and scholarship since the 1980s, and he wrote his dissertation on the painterly aspects of John Updike's fiction when he was at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. His essays on Updike have uh, been ap appeared in Rabbit Tales, Poetry and Politics, and John Updike's Rabbit Novels, John Updike and Religion, The Sense of the Sacred and the Motions of Grace, The Cambridge Companion to John Updike, and Critical Insights, John Updike. In addition to editing Conversations with John Updike and John Updike's Pennsylvania Interviews, he has written or edited Two volumes on Ernest Hemingway, one on Raymond Carver, and the film Casablanca. In 2004, he received the, his university's highest award for teaching and scholarship. And in a previous lifetime, he directed the Hemingway Days Writers Workshop at Key West, Florida. And he also edited the award-winning Clockwatch Review, a journal for the arts. Everyone welcome, Jim. <laughs> also a pretty good resume. So this is what a live podcast is. <laughs> this is what a live podcast is. I guess, yeah. It's my first they time. They neglected too. to mention there would actually be bodies out there. <laughs> I pictured a soundproof, you know, booth a somewhere. A room with no one in the, in the room. Or, or, you know, a nerdy basement, you know, where mom is upstairs. Ma, bring us some uh, No, podcast, it's gone legit now. Wow. We, uh, I, I invited Jim here because I'm a member of the John Updike Society, and I'm selfishly happy that we have overlap here in Bloomington with Illinois Wesleyan University and a lot of great scholars uh, at, at that school as well. And so it's very selfish of me as an Updike fan and scholar to be able to uh, have the president of the society here in Bloomington and to wanted to bring you in and talk to you a little bit about uh, 
the history of John Updike scholarship and the society, talk about that a little bit, how that came to be. And, um, you know, Wallace died a few months before John Updike. They, they died within a few months of each other. And so we have a good sense of what Wallace scholarship has, how it has evolved since then. But I'm curious, you know, I wasn't involved in it then, and I'm curious to see, you know, how the society came to be and how it reacted you know, to his death, and if you could talk about that a little bit. Yeah, boy, you said something about Trace the Scholarship. Oh, my God. You know, <laughs> that started way back voluminous. when. I mean, it was the, the Hamiltons that came out with the first monograph on Updike, and I 60s, think that was back in 66 yeah. or well. something like that. And uh, there's been a resurgence, and I think you'll find with the society, uh, one of the perks of having a society is that your your mission is to, to keep the author in the conversation uh, of the canon and uh, I think we've seen an uptick in Updike scholarship since we formed the society, and I think you'll see the same thing, and, and that's very, very rewarding. Um, what happened was uh, I had entertained the idea of a society, and I actually asked John what he would think of it. And uh, his response was uh, basically like his response is for anything, no, 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 not in my <laughs> lifetime. And so after, after he died, and I have this, this, this postcard from him where he wanted to reinforce that no. A phone call wasn't enough. He needed to send me a postcard and say, your mention of an Updike Society reminds me of an old Max Beerbaum cartoon of, I forget who it was, maybe James Thurber, uh, sitting in the middle of his society and simmering. And, and, and uh, <laughs> he, he felt very self-conscious about it. He didn't want the attention on him, which is a common theme mm -hmm. I'm hearing here. Um, and yet, all writers go into it for uh, immortality. Mm -hmm. And so it's ridiculous not to think that, yes, this is going to help. This is going to help you achieve literary immortality. And he knew it, which is one reason why Updike had a reputation for working with scholars. I mean, he, you, you wanted to write a paper. He wasn't like his alter ego, Henry Beck, who had a, a, a stamp that would read, you know, <laughs> write your own goddamn dissertation or something to that effect. Uh, he, uh, he was very forthcoming. Um, and, and it was always with Updike, it was a yes but, right? Mm -hmm. It was like you'd, you'd throw this this the theory at him like uh, the painterly aspects of John Updike's fiction. Uh, I saw all kinds of Vermeer action going on in his domestic fictions and uh, he would mention Vermeer all the time and all of a sudden I'm seeing this kind of scenes from Vermeer, those domestic paintings that he did, the genre paintings, and I approached him about doing the, the dissertation and uh, he, he responded basically, uh, no, I, I said far be it from me to quarrel with any readers reading of my work, um, but uh, I, I really think this is a strange direction. That said, you might consider looking up <laughs> The Witches of Eastwick, which I consider my pop art novel, and you might consider this, and you might consider that. I mean, and it's very hilarious because he did the same thing when I did conversations with John Updike. He would, you know, fight me every, every step of the way, but then he'd say, what, they only gave you 284 pages? Tell them you want more. <laughs> this is John Updike we're talking about. Yeah, so anyway. Oh, that's great. <laughs> that doesn't do anything so for... So he's a pretty uh, humble guy. Yeah, well, yeah. 
He's humble unless it comes down to the real money, which is getting his his uh, literary reputation out there. I mean, that's something that's a little bit different with Wallace, and that we, you know, didn't. I, as far as we know, I know, no one really approached him about it in his lifetime about having a society. He, we did approach him. We had a, a, a member of our listserv. We had a listserv about him, and one of our members of our listserv at a reading one time asked him to write. Uh, like a greeting to the listserv, and he was like, just all of his hackles Street raised up, <laughs> and just, I mean, he did it, right, and he was very nice about it, but the idea of, uh, he, I read a letter that he wrote that said something about, he saw a fan site, and it made his testes shrivel up <laughs> into, <laughs> into his body, so I mean, he was very um, reticent to to consider the idea of someone writing about the testy uh, and the testes thing is very funny because I, I had a similar experience with Updike where uh, he said that that the no no not that <laughs> just because it's Updike you guys Come are on. laughing already is that, um, no no basically it was this the same kind of thing where um, he. Um, uh, now I lost my train of thought. The testy shriveling up. Yeah yeah yeah. Um, and why did you say his testes? Well, <laughs> just his sheer horror at the idea that someone had created a fan site about him. Right. Uh, okay. I mean. Yeah. And and I remember what I was going to say is that uh, when we asked him about the society, he said, "No, no, no." He said, "I'm feeling enough pressure already because of this silly thing that Jim Yerkes is doing." Uh, the Centaurian, which was an online Updike newsletter. And he said, since that's come out, I feel like I should be making news all the time. <laughs> uh, and it was a burden for him. Yeah. He, he really didn't like it at all. Yeah. I, so while you're here, we have to ask you about the review that, that Wallace wrote of Updike. That I think it was reprinted as certainly the end of something or the other. He's reviewing toward the end of time. And it, we were chatting about this before we set up here, and uh, Charlie made a great comment that Wallace attacked those who he loved. <laughs> and and he, he was clearly a fan of Updike, and, and I think Updike was an influence on some of his work. But, you know, what did you make of that review at the time when it came out? Did you read that review? Yeah, at the time, everyone was completely shocked, even though we couldn't read Toward the End of Time either, a lot of us. It was, <laughs> it's not his best work. Well, <laughs> it's not his best work, but... Uh, I'm one of those that thinks that Updike is far more of an experimental writer than he's given credit for. Mm -hmm. I mean, you're going to go out and after being successful doing X, Y, and Z, now I'm going to write a sci-fi you know, novel here, a futuristic novel, and I'm going to tackle aging again, and I'm going to do it, though, in, in a futuristic way. I, I think there's something very uh, ambitious about that, um, but... That said, uh, I couldn't read it either. So, I, I mean, I agreed <laughs> with, with David. Um, I did think it was his worst book, but when you're attacking with that kind of venom and, and you know, male narcissists, uh, um, what was that book, the best line? Uh, penis with a Penis with a thesaurus. Penis with a thesaurus. And what else did he say? Oh, my God. Just the, the stuff he was throwing out there is just like one thing after another. Would say that, right? Yeah, the, the male narcissist, and he called him a solipsist, uh, which, again, is something he... <laughs> He lit has the son of a bitch had one unpublished thought. Uh, yeah. Makes yeah. misogyny seem literary the same way Limbaugh makes fascism seem funny. <laughs> I mean, that's really it's bitter, it's right? Brutal. And so I think all the Updike crowd, you know, we're like, ah, David Foster Wallace is doing yeah. this, and you know what's going on. And of course, there were all sorts of people, uh, Slant and Salon, that were coming to Updike's defense. 
saying, no, 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 there's, you know, how is uh, Updike any more self-absorbed than F. Scott Fitzgerald or, or uh, Steinbeck or Faulkner or any, any writer writes his or her reality? And um, you end up being the star of your own movie. And it happens again and again, right? So uh, I, th I think I, I, I agree with his assessment, but when he came out and attacked it to that degree, the first thing I thought of was, well, he's just like Hemingway, mm -hmm. trying to kill the father, you know, that Freudian thing. Uh, and so maybe he was more of an influence than he wanted to admit. Uh, and so, you know, Hemingway wrote that parody, Torrance of Spring, to dispatch Sherwood Anderson, who was his big early influence, even before Gertrude Stein. And so that was my thought, and that was a lot of people's uh, thinking w when they saw that. I, I felt like it was an easy target in some way for, uh, you know, kind of an iconoclastic takedown, and that Wallace hadn't really grappled with Updike in, in any of his essays uh, to that extent. So his opportunity, it was like, oh, you're going to take this opportunity for this weird experimental science fiction book and just take down uh, Updike, I was like, because I was an Updike fan too, I was like, man, mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm still not going to change my opinion of it, but uh, I mean, it's a little different for you because you're here in Bloomington, this came out, you know, when Wallace is in, living in Bloomington, did you, were you aware of Wallace being here writing and publishing on Updike? Oh, oh yeah, I mean, I introduced him when he first came to Bloomington Normal at, you might have been at Words Fair, Charlie, were you? <laughs> yeah, and I was the MC uh, the day that he made his Bloomington Normal debut, and he read a piece of, of short fiction that I thought was good, but I wasn't blown away, I gotta tell you. <laughs> it, it, seemed, it seemed very, you know, Charlie, you were saying that, uh, uh, there were other people that were very close for this job, very, you know, very good contenders. And, you know, I think I heard kind of like the first uh, 20 pages of Great Gatsby, right? You hear about Gatsby and everything is built up and built up and then you meet Gatsby and it's like, huh, okay, Gatsby. <laughs> well, that's funny. Old sport, that's I, all you need, right? And, and he seemed very normal to me, had the short hair and, and the glasses and uh, very reticent a little bit. Uh, um, he got up and he read. He was very polite, very genteel almost. Uh, so I could believe that conservative th remark that he made. <laughs> that uh, That's kind of the way he struck me. And then uh, there was a curious evolution. Um, I, was, I was editing uh, Clockwatch Review. Um, we had Gene Lee editing uh, Farmer's Market. We had Bob Sutherland doing Pikestaff Forum. Uh, we had Lucia Getze doing Spoon River Poetry Review. Um, Kirk... Kurt White. Kurt White doing uh, uh, FC2. Mm -hmm. We had John with okay. Dolphy Archive. And so we had a bigger, more vibrant literary community down here than, than there was in Chicago. Mm -hmm. uh, we had the Illinois Writers, Inc. that was based here. And so when you say, is this a place where David Foster Wallace could thrive? Well, not now. <laughs> not now. But then, I mean, it was, it was pretty big stuff. We had the Billy Murray Denny Poetry Contest that was nationwide. And that was also run pretty much by the, the same crowd. Um, everybody was active in the Illinois Arts Council, serving on the literary panels. We were uh, on panels with various uh, politicians, all talking about the arts. We had all kinds of publicity in the newspapers, which you don't get now. You know, oh, we're coming out with a new issue. You, you brought one, right? Didn't you bring one? Well, I just brought an old, uh, an old story here, if anybody wants to see it, of the good old days. But, uh, <laughs> 
But yeah, so it was a real That's literary cool. community, cool. and uh, so yeah, I was aware of Wallace. And what what was curious to me is that there I saw a transformation. Like Charlie, you mentioned that there were three David Wallaces, right? Well, I saw two of them. Mm. You know, the one that I first met, and uh, and the one that I would see at parties. And then all of a sudden, I think there was this transition time where at one of Lucia's parties, uh, I remember sitting in a room, and he was on in the in the living room. And he just came in, he came in a little late, came in and he sat down, and within seconds, it was like, I was struck by, it was like the opening of The Simpsons, where everyone just kind of, <laughs> shoom, you know, just joined him on the couch. And uh, they were clearly fawning, and he was trying to deal with it. Yeah. And it was, it was clear that part of him enjoyed it, and part of him was, you know, well, what do I do here? And then before you know it, you've got the, the headscarf going on <laughs> and you've got the David Foster Wallace thing that made me think of that famous comedian who said I knew Doris Day before she was a virgin <laughs> well I had that same kind of sensation when I would you know see the David Foster Wallace that you know became this this big name writer right here in Bloomington Normal where we're just kind of you know <laughs> we're normal <laughs> even if we live in Bloomington we're normal and, and that as Charlie said was was not normal. So I think it was the persona that he kind of grew, um, uh, that he needed to be as a, as a writer. And uh, getting back to Updike, yeah. I think a lot of the things that he took from Updike, uh, one of the things was uh, if you're going to be taken seriously as a writer, you can't just write fiction. Mm -hmm. You've got to be a commentator of culture. Mm -hmm. You've got to be someone who writes about other, other writers and pronounces these writers good, these writers wanting. Um, you've got to do what Updike did and uh, write what is the definitive sports essay. You know, Hub fans bid kid a, a do. Yeah. You know, of uh, Ted Williams last at bat, uh, and he's familiar the with Roger all of these Federer. Things. I mean, Wallace Federer, wrote so. the yeah he probably he greatest essay ever on a tennis player. Yeah, and uh, that that kind of. Uh, Variation in the work, I think, is is something that we talk a lot about on the panels here. And there's people who love his nonfiction. I think the yeah. same is true with Updike. And there are people that love his essays and criticism and art criticism. Uh, and to see that kind of variety from a writer, to me, it means it's, it's a vibrant, um, scholarly community to go forward. You know, if there's just a small set of novels and you analyze them over and over, and you know, eventually that kind of goes into weird directions. Yeah. Um, the last question I had for you is about, um, you'd mentioned one of your colleagues would occasionally bring him in to, to talk to classes. Yeah. Um, what, what was your sense of him as, uh, you know, talking about literature or being able to comment on contemporary writing? Well, I didn't sit in on those classes, mm -hmm. and so uh, you'd have to talk to mm -hmm. Kathleen O'Gorman uh, about that. But he's she taught avant-garde lit, and um, she got him to come in to talk to her class every single time. And uh, there's no compensation, just, you know, thank you. And uh, he, he loved talking to the, to the students about avant-garde literature. And you also mentioned that you, you'd see him on, when he lives on Fell Avenue? Is that oh, right? yeah, yeah. I just noticed that house is for rent now, if anybody wants to rent a house that he lived in for a while. Remember that little house that Lucia owned, uh, that little tiny one by Fell Park that uh, David rented for a while? I forget how long he lived there. It wasn't long. No, a few months. Yeah. It was like a transitional house for him, but still he was there, and... Uh, it's there, right there on uh, Fell and University in Bloomington. We'll drive by Should that. Should we try and buy it? It'll be another drive-by, right? <laughs> yeah. You can't miss it. There's a for, for rent sign in front of it, and it's the tiniest little thing. 
I put ten bucks on it. Well, thanks for joining us today, Jim. I've really enjoyed this talk. Do you have any? I have a final question. So I, I'm really embarrassed to say this, Jim, and I'm sorry, but I've never read any uptake. So mm. for other maybe like listeners out there like me, what is the best place to start? Well, Someone let's who likes see. Wallace <laughs> wants to get into uptake. Somebody that likes Wallace. Wallace said that he thought the Poorhouse Fair of the Farm and the Centaur are all great books, maybe classics. Mm. Okay. Those are right. his Pennsylvania novels. So <laughs> three of his Pennsylvania novels. They're also pretty pastoral. Okay. Yeah, so I found it interesting yeah. that in attacking Updike, he, he, he read 25 Updike books, so he was clearly a fan. Yeah. Said toward the end of time was disappointing, the worst <laughs> one of the 25, right? <laughs> but I find it interesting that uh, he's, he didn't list any of the books that were particularly sexy. Mm-hmm. Or sex film. Like the rabbit. The, couple, the rabbit, the couples. couples, which got national attention. Uh, Witches of Eastwick, the uh, the trilogy, if you're into Hawthorne for Updike, read the Scarlet Letter trilogy. Uh, and that's another thing I think that uh, David Foster Wallace really picked up from Updike is that you have to have a dialogue with your literary uh, heirs mm-hmm. and uh, really engage them. And I think he did. And yeah, that's like with the Barth that we were talking about. Is yeah. that he was engaged. Directly and in, in responding to Barth, so he was, I think, part of that tradition. Uh, and I, of those, my favorite is of the farm. I don't know which one you like. Or I always like uh, the centaur. And uh, when I teach, I teach um, uh, a class on American magical realism, and so I'll I'll oh. alternate between the, the centaur, centaur uh, which really gets into uh, s- some of that before Barth even. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the, he beats Barth by about a couple of a couple, couple of years. years. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I'll teach that, or I'll teach Witches of Eastwick, which if you see the movie, don't. I mean, <laughs> block it out somehow. It's yeah, totally it's different. Yeah, well. <laughs> well, again, thanks awesome for joining us. Thank I you. really appreciate you coming here. Is there anything else you, you had you wanted to share with us? Or? All right. Well, thanks I'm again. Good. Thanks a lot, Jim. Thank you. Thank you. I'll have a ticket. <laughs> thanks. All right, so over here to Jim, we forgot. Go ahead and take paper. All right. So we have a couple more things to give away. Dave, you will. There's uh, five more books up here and lots of stickers. So if you want a sticker, sticker. come get a sticker after. There's like fat stacks. Um, All right. (laughs) Prize giveaway number three. The last question was about fate, time, and language. Okay. Who here believes that Hobbes is just Rousseau in a dark mirror? And that, with Hegel, that transcendence is absorption. (laughs) (laughs) Who here believes that Hobbes is just Rousseau in a dark mirror? Anyone? Anyone who hasn't got a prize yet? (laughs) (laughs) Come, just someone put up your hand and you'll win a book. That's what I'm getting at here. Okay, all right, (laughs) nice, Thaddeus, right on. Who here most strongly identifies with the term convexity? <laughs> other, other than me. Michelle Martin. Michelle. Oh, Michelle, were you first? Yeah, these guys were a little slow on the draw. All right, Michelle, come on up. <laughs> I got to say, too, that uh, I think last episode I gave a shout out to Michelle because she came over to Victoria and we went out with some, uh, some other Wallace people for beers, and it was awesome. And um, all right, take those if you want to. Okay, we got um, we have 
We have more books than I made questions for. I thought I did the right math. Uh, we, That's why I'm a, let's an give English one to person. Lauren. Okay. Nuxters. All right. Nurse. Come on up. <laughs> Canadian repre- We have a lot of people from Toronto here. Yeah. I feel like University of Toronto. That's like that's like odds are if you're from Canada you're probably from Toronto. I'm just curious like, like how many people are not US citizens. Bonjour. Ça va? Non-US citizens. <laughs> Look at all of these non-US citizens. This is like <laughs> <laughs> No, no, no. I I am serious and that's one reason why when we started the David Foster Wallace Society, I wanted to put international in there because I think it does show some of the diversity of our scholarship and that we have people all over the world, not native speakers, reading him in translation, reading him in original English, and then writing on it. It's phenomenal to me that the the scholarship is not regional-based. It is global, and I wanted that to be represented. So I'm very proud of, I think our society, again, we have like 10 11, 12 countries represented. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that's very cool. Um, yeah. I, I think we have like three books left. Yeah, so I had one other question, which was meant just basically to give John Mango a book, which is who here gave their talk more than once at this conference? <laughs> <laughs> he already got a book, though. But he already won because he went sackpot. Anyone else give their talk twice? <laughs> just kerswang in you, man. Um, uh, can you think of a question off the top of your head? Just like. What's a good one? Someone, someone suggest a, a good question we can do. Is someone not read the DT Max book? Someone not read it. Okay, perfect. perfect Congratulations. Um, who likes who okay. likes Oblivion? No, no, I'll say. Okay. <laughs> who's, whose favorite David Foster Wallace story is in Oblivion? Oh, that's better. Oh, that was Max. a hand first. Yeah, come on up, man. And, and who, wait, there's two of those. Who else raised their hand on that one? Carly Ginks. All right, Carly. That's all the books. Take a sticker. Take a sticker. The children love the books. Um, That's from Elf. So, but the children love the books. That's my favorite part of Elf. Um, okay, so we've come to the end of the episode. Thank you guys for showing up in person. Thank you for listening. If you listen, uh, you know, not in person, we really appreciate it. And it's been really cool to meet many of you this week who have like have we've had tons of interaction with through email and Twitter and stuff and we've never met you in real life and you came to this it's so great to meet you guys so rad uh, we want to do our thanks now we want to of course thank our guests Charlie and James thank you Ryan Edel thank you for all your hard work putting on this conference and you stayed till the end you were able to stay that's awesome great We want to thank Gloomsbury for all their generous donations of, of many of the books that we gave away. A lot of them came from Matt um, with Sideshow Media. You could thank group. me. So thank you, Matt. Um, want to thank Becky Madison for the awesome camp friendship bracelets, infinite jest theme color that she made. Uh, that's pretty rad. Uh, as always, Robin O'Neill and Parquet Courts. Sorry, Andrew Savage, if I butchered your song on the ukulele, <laughs> uh, if you listen to this. And uh, we want to give a special shout out to our, to our friends. Are they friends, would you say? Uh, this is our Nemesis? arch enemies. Arch I enemies. give a shout out to our arch enemies. At the Pension and Public podcast. <laughs> uh, we have an ongoing beef with them, and so um, we, no shout out for them. Oh, so like, <laughs> so more like Pension and Private. Pension and should be in private. You know Pension would want that to be in private, <laughs> not in public. But. Where can the people find us, Matt? Um, before that, I have one other one. I want to okay. thank Jonas Stutz. Jonah. Yeah, Jonah. Awesome. All right. Um, people can find us at Twitter. We're Concavity Show and Instagram concav- at Concavity Show yep. or email us. 
we've gotten more email in the past like six months than ever and it's awesome like if you want to email us about anything please do we're concavityshow at gmail.com thank you thanks for coming Play us out, Dave. But, but dinner is ready, Ryan. What's the story, man? Cash bar. So you guys know I just played that flawlessly this time, whereas before I made like five mistakes. Well, hopefully the mic picked it up. Hopefully. <laughs>